I'm Keith Deason, and this is From the Ground Up, a podcast about how we make what we make, the tools, the materials, and the stories behind the things we build. This episode is brought to you by the fine people over at Total Boat. If you've been around the maker community for a while, you know about how Total Boat has a great line of products from finishes to epoxies and so much more. And they are huge supporters of everything we do. So go check them out at TotalBoat.com. January 2nd, 1988. The Capitol Center in Landover, Maryland. Onlookers gasp collectively as the massive hands of Andre the Giant close tighter and tighter around the throat of his opponent, Hulk Hogan. Hogan, a fan favorite in the World Wrestling Federation, is slipping from consciousness as the arena erupts. This was an entirely unexpected matchup. Hulk, just after defeating his scheduled opponent, laid down his championship belt at his feet and challenged the giant, taunting him into the ring. A regrettable move is not more than 30 seconds later, Andre stands over the slumped Hulk, hands on his neck, resembling a giant toddler dragging around a doll that has lost a not unnoticeable amount of stuffing. Quickly, but possibly too late, other wrestlers sprint towards the ring. One by one, they begin to throw heavy overhand blows at the back and sides of the giant, who seems completely unaffected by the assault. Andre, wearing a blazer, slacks, and suspenders, grins gleefully as his fingertips nearly meet around Hogan's throat. Sweat begins to soak its way through his light lavender dress shirt, but he shows no signs of stopping. A seventh wrestler appears from behind the scenes. Hacksaw Jim Duggan, a former champion and ultra-patriotic crowd-pleaser, leaps into the ring. If Charlie Manson and Ogre from Revenge of the Nerds drove a couple of monster trucks into one another at top speed, Jim Duggan would be the resultant pile of debris. Sporting black briefs and his signature weapon, a random 2x4, he joins the fracas. Hacksaw delivers a few good two-handed wallops to the upper back of Hulk's assailant with his board forcing the giant to drop the unconscious Hogan and set his sights on his new opponent. Deftly, Duggan dives out of the ring as Andre lumbers towards him, the other wrestlers dragging their fallen hero, Hulk Hogan, out of the arena to safety. Things de-escalate quickly from there. The crowd boos Andre as he holds Hogan's belt up high, about nine feet to the top of his outstretched hand. The jeers from the audience drown out his words, but it's obvious he's saying through a grin, as wide as it was intimidating, now who is the champion? The ringside announcers, seemingly shocked by what has transpired, can only point out that if not for the 2x4, which Duggan nearly broke over the back of the giant, Hulk might have never escaped. In an age where every good guy wrestler was shouting from the ring about how proud they were to be an American, Hacksaw Jim Duggan shown as especially patriotic, right down to the only two objects he ever seemed to be carrying, the American flag and a 2x4. Duggan's weapon of choice, like every other of its kind, wasn't really a 2x4 though. Anyone who has wandered through a hardware store or just seen one lying around can tell you, and probably has, that 2x4s, unlike wrestling in the 80s, don't really live up to the hype. In fact, all of them are only one and a half inches by three and a half inches. But why is that? They call it a two by four, why not just make them two by four? In 
In the colonial days, through the time of the revolution and into the country's infancy, construction in America was a much smaller affair than it is by modern standards. Carpenters, the ones building your home, would be supplied by a local sawyer who would fell nearby trees and cut them to size as needed. Sizes were already somewhat standardized by their use. Nobody was ordering 5 inch by 9 inch beams to frame the interior walls of a home. That would be terribly inefficient. But still, variations existed and changed from carpenter to carpenter depending on their preferences and needs. One carpenter might be able to comfortably hold a 2 inch by 4 inch board in one hand while nailing it into place, and another might be more comfortable with a 1 and 3 quarter by 4 inch board, and they would each order accordingly. As populations grew, however, the need for space overtook the need for abundant local forests, and the tree felling operations moved further and further from major cities, marrying the desirability of a logging site with how easily the wood could be transported to the carpenters in the cities. This caused areas near busy waterways to become hubs of log distribution. No, that was not a poop joke. The logs were literally floated on canals and waterways at first. But, with the development of the railway system, the tiny puppy that had been the construction industry in the U.S. became the big ol' hairy hound that we're more familiar with, almost overnight. By the turn of the 20th century, the industry was divided up regionally, with western mills outputting Douglas fir lumber, and southern pineries dealing with, well, pines, and each region exporting their own specialized species, at their own standard sizes, across the railways that now penetrated deep into the American wilderness. Just a reminder that From the Ground Up is an ongoing experiment and will always be provided free of charge. This episode is sponsored by Total Boat, who I can tell you exclusively, that's right, you heard it here first, They're launching a new product in the next week or so that is very exciting. It's going to be a new, easy-to-use wood finish. It's a food-safe oil and wax finish that enhances the natural look and grain of your projects instantly, adding enhanced depth and beauty with every additional coat. You just wipe it on, wipe it off, until you get the bright luster and look that you want. Go check it out along with all their other amazing products at TotalBoat.com. Competition was fierce. Lumbermen battled over markets in the major cities. Retailers and carpenters no longer had the option to buy directly from a local sawyer. There were plenty of options, but one major hurdle stood in their way. Transportation. In the early 1900s, when you would buy from a lumber mill, you would buy it FOB, or free on board, which only meant that you were responsible for having it shipped to wherever you need. This would prevent mills in, say, Minnesota from taking much business away from sawmills around Maryland because the difference in shipping would be outrageous. The costs already doubled the cost of lumber on average. Shipping was a huge expense. Around the same time, some mills had begun to introduce lumber that was cut after being rough sawn, using edging machines and rip saws to a final dimension that was standard to their company or region. Formerly, the wood was left oversized to allow for shrinkage while drying and for carpenters to plane down to final dimensions. Each region had their own unique standards, such as North Carolina Pine Association grading rules revised to April 1, 1906, which stated, All lumber shall be well manufactured and well dried. 
1 8 inch shall be allowed to dress 4 4, 5 4, 6 4, and 8 4 lumber on one side. 3 16 inch shall be allowed to dress 4 4 and 5 4 lumber two sides. 1 4 inch shall be allowed to dress 6 4 and thicker lumber two sides. Or, the Pacific Coast Lumber Manufacturers Association standard dimensions and grading, which lists Rules for export trade, copyright 1902. Sizes 4 inches and under in thickness or 6 inches and under in width will be worked 1 8 inch less for each side or edge surfaced. Sizes over 4 inches in thickness or over 6 inches in width will be worked 1 quarter inch less for each side surfaced. Tongued and grooved, surfaced on one side, will be worked 1 8 inch less in thickness, 5 8 inch narrower on the face. And so on. It was all very tedious, very exact, and made it incredibly difficult to shop for lumber from multiple sources. During and after World War I, lumber shortages and advancements in building technologies were jeopardizing the value of lumber and the future of wooden construction in the U.S. Housing construction was taking off, and engineers, retailers, and builders were investing in new methods of framing such as using concrete block, engineered plywood, or strand boards. Facing a declining industry, the various regional lumber associations, as well as retailers and other experts, met in the first American Lumber Congress in Chicago in 1919. One of the main demands of the attendees of this meeting were for common standards throughout the entire industry. Retailers especially wanted this, as their customers preferred to know what size boards they were getting ahead of time, and the current national marketplace was utterly confusing. The Congress agreed that standardization should be a priority, and tasked the National Lumber Manufacturers Association with figuring out how to go about setting them. The NLMA sought help from the U.S. Forest Products Laboratory, which had already begun to research the standards and manufacturing processes for the various regional lumber companies. Over the next few years, the groups would work together to bring the idea of standardization to the forefront of the industry, if not the actual standards themselves. Immense changes began to sweep the lumber industry. The data collection of the U.S. Forest Products Lab, as well as meetings of prominent lumbermen, including then-Secretary of Commerce Herbert Hoover, began to shape the policy for lumber standards and how they would be implemented and enforced. The numbers themselves fluctuated as the industry searched for the perfect ratios, affected by changes in building codes, retail environments, and shipping. It was around this time the Panama Canal opened and allowed West Coast lumber to be shipped easily to the East Coast by water. And unlike on trains where you paid for shipping by weight, cargo ships charged by volume. The western mills shaped, dressed, and shipped their lumber out while it still had a high moisture content, and also removed an additional quarter inch of material to fit more of the larger, wet lumber into crates. The boards would shrink as they dried on the voyage, and when they arrived they were slightly thinner than the local lumber, which was dressed when it was completely dried. Tradesmen did not like the method of dressing green lumber. They argued that the standard should be dressing dry. But, as was noted by lumber industry bigwig Mr. W. M. Boner of the Wirehoser Company, they were right that dressing green is worse, but it was cheaper, and nobody was willing to fork over the cash for dry-dressed wood so long as the scant lumber was on the market. This conglomeration of market forces, shipping rates, and methodologies continued to literally eat away at the sizes of mass-produced construction lumber until, finally, the modern standards were agreed upon and set in 1964. 
The 2x4 was now 1.5x3.5 and had rounded edges, which provide a number of pretty interesting benefits. The rounded edges of construction lumber add protection from splits and cracks while shipping, which happen more often on the sharp corners of a board. It's also easier to handle rounded boards during construction, making the job safer and faster. The sharp corners of boards catch fire more easily, being thinner, and rounding them off eliminates a fair amount of flammability. Sharp corners on a joist or stud would also make drywalling more difficult, as they would accentuate any flaws in the framing or boards, and removing the corners allows for more actual wiggle room. Finally, sawdust itself has become a much more important product of the mills than it used to be. The corners of each board, obviously unnecessary for construction purposes, are more valuable when broken down into ingredients in engineered wood, animal bedding, fuel pellets, and many other products. The evolution, or de-evolution depending on how you look at it, of the 2x4 is entwined with the story of American ingenuity. Increasing efficiencies in large-scale manufacturing, the rise of modern transportation, and the changes in the construction industry all come together to squeeze every last morsel of usability out of each tree, each board, and each speck of dust from the milling process. So the next time someone asks why 2x4 is actually 1.5x3.5, you can give them the answer. Because it can be. If you have a show idea or premise you think would be interesting, feel free to write me at podcastftgu at gmail.com and tell me about it. Or just ask a making-related question you've always wanted answered, or tell me an interesting story you've heard about nails or wrenches or concrete or something. Thanks again to Total Boat for sponsoring this episode of the podcast and for being such excellent partners to myself and the rest of the maker community on YouTube, Instagram, podcasts, and beyond. Remember, Total Boat for your woodworking and finishing needs and also for boat stuff, which I hear they are also into. Anyways, thanks for listening, and until next time, this is Keith Decent saying, Later, makers.